Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, when I was young, I thought that life was basically going to be easy and then every so often you'd have a problem. And that problems were somewhat the exception to life, right? But as I've grown older, I've realized the exact opposite is true. That life is basically filled with problems and every so often it gets easy. You learn that when you start having children, by the way. That's when it really comes home on you. And so I would say this, life is basically a series of problems. And how you handle those problems largely determines your quality of life. And so as we go through life, we learn how to manage problems. We learn how to deal with things as they come up. But what do you do when the problem turns into a crisis? You see, a crisis is a problem that's too big for us to handle. And those are going to come into our lives too. You know, I read this story years ago. There was this criminal in South Africa named Isaac, and he had just committed armed robbery, and he's running from the police in Johannesburg. And in the panic of running from the police, he runs into a zoo. And by now, he's sort of lost his mind. His only thought is to get away from the police. And so he's, you know, he's jumping lines. He's doing everything. And then he comes up to this short wall, and he jumps the wall, not knowing that on the other side is the gorilla enclosure. True story. And when Isaac jumped that wall, he went from having a problem to having a crisis, because I just, I just love to imagine the first thought that went through his head when he lands, and in that gorilla enclosure, there's a 550-pound mountain gorilla named Max, who's got a girlfriend named Lily, and Max is startled and angry. Now, they tell me that uh, a gorilla is about nine times stronger than a human being, that a gorilla can easily pick up and throw 900 pounds that they can deadlift 1,800 pounds, and that the bite of a, of a gorilla is roughly two and a half times the bite strength of a male African lion, 1,300 PSI, and they have two-inch fangs. And so when Isaac jumps into the gorilla enclosure, this is what he's facing, an angry 550-pound gorilla named Max. And so Max picks him up, tosses him like a rag doll, turns him over like, like a hot dog, and in Isaac's own words, he bit me hard on the buttocks. <laughs> and I, I guess Isaac kind of lost his mind at that moment, so he took the gun he had, the 38 caliber, and he shot Max twice, which was a terrible mistake because that only made Max quite a bit more angry. Isaac later said, Max dropped me, and I fell into the water. He ran around and became violent, grabbed me by my right leg, swung me around, and threw me against the wall, and I became dizzy. <laughs> he said, I thought my last hour had come. Fortunately for him, the police arrived, and they managed to arrest 
uh, to rescue and arrest Isaac, but not before one of the policemen had his arm broken by the gorilla. Another one was bitten in the same place that Isaac was bitten, and another one had his ankle broken, but they finally got him out. I'm pleased to report that Max went on to live a full and happy life after that, fostering many little gorilla babies. But, you know, I back up and I think about that, and I think, you know, it's funny. I know it's not funny, but it's funny to me because I can't help but imagine the sheer terror of jumping a, a small wall and finding yourself face-to-face with a 500-pound gorilla. But the truth is, while you and I aren't going to fight a bunch of physical gorillas we are going to run into crisis that feels like we are. Uh, and we're all going to have those crises. We're going to reach a point in our life where the problem is bigger than we can manage. Uh, it may be health-related. It can happen in a variety of ways, you know. Uh, it could be, you know, something that happens in your family. It could be a loss that happens of someone you love. I mean, there's just so many different ways for the crisis to emerge. And sometimes the crisis is our doing. Sometimes the crisis is created by someone else. And sometimes God allows it and uses it, right? And in fact, I think He always uses it. So, so how do we deal when our, when our problems turn into crisis? Well, John chapter 6, let's go. There's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 1. says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. So after these things refers back to everything that's kind of happened in you know, chapter 5. He's had this big argument, this conflict with the Jewish leaders, and now that's all kind of passed. He's back up in the north in Galilee, and he's back to ministry, right? And it says a large crowd followed him. And so this massive group of people, you know, I mean, picture some modern celebrity, you know, with all of these uh, Taylor Swift Swifties following him. And, and notice why they were following him. They were following him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so they're following not only to see the magic show, but they're also following in hopes that he'll meet their physical needs. And, and the problem with this, and we talked about this before, is signs always addict us to signs. And, and so signs were to gather their attention, but it was not to, to foster their faith. Because signs won't foster faith. And we're going to see this in the rest of chapter 6 later on when he, when he talks to them. And so many of the people wind up leaving him because of that. But that's why they were following. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And by the way, Jesus sat down to teach far more than he stood up to preach. And most scholars think that this mountain that he's on is probably the same mountain that he delivered the Sermon on the Mount on. So verse 4, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. And I don't really know why that was brought up. He doesn't really connect the dots for us. He doesn't tell us why. Maybe there's some connection there to feeding 5,000 with five loaves. Uh, maybe it's something else that's going on. Or maybe he's just trying to give us a timeline because the last time when he was in Jerusalem, it was the feast, and that would have been a year ago. So, you know, I don't really know why it's there. But in verse 5, here's the crisis. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, who's one of the 12 disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, Matthew and Mark both tell this story too. And they supply some details that aren't here in John. And one of the details is, is that the hour had gotten late, it was past dinner time, and the disciples had actually come to Jesus and said to Jesus, hey, we need to send these people away so they can find some food, they can buy food, and they can get something to eat. 
And Jesus flips that around and he turns the problem into a crisis because he says to Philip, no, no, uh, how are you guys going to feed them, right? And automatically, you're in a situation that's beyond your ability, right? Verse 6, this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And you know, I want to say this, that regardless of where the crisis comes from, maybe it's some dumb thing you did. I've created plenty of crisis for Bill, right? Maybe it's some dumb thing somebody did to you, and other people have caused the crisis. Or, or maybe there's just no explanation for it. You know, those people in Maui, there's no explanation for that crisis. just a natural part of living on a fallen planet. But whatever the crisis is, God doesn't want to waste your crisis. And He wants to use you because here's what I think. I think God does His greatest work in our crisis. C.S. Lewis says that pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And when we're in crisis, we are more attentive and we hear God's Word better than at any other time in our life. And I hear that repeatedly from the stories of people. So he was testing him. Verse 7, Philip answered him. So Philip immediately has thought this through. He says, 200 denarii. Denarii was a day's wage. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. In other words, we don't have the money to do this. Now notice, Philip is answering the wrong question. He said where, he didn't say how much. Because he's really wanting Philip and the rest of the disciples to understand, your source is me. But Philip wasn't even thinking about his source. He was just thinking about the cost, and he's thinking about what he has and what's available to him. And he says, 200 denarii, it's not enough. We're, we don't have the money. Verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, I love Andrew, you know. Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. Andrew was always, you know, enthusiastic and optimistic. And, and he somehow found some little kid with some food. And he said to him, there's a lad here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. And then he realizes, but what are these for so many people? You know, barley loaves were the food of the poor, the very poor. Um, in fact, they were, they were so undesirable that normal people wouldn't even eat barley loaves. And don't think of them as like a loaf of like Wonder Bread. It's more like a little biscuit of barley-shaped uh, flour and bread. And the fish weren't like, you know, prize fish from a bass fisherman or some big catfish. They were little sardines that had been pickled and salted that a little boy could put in his lunch and carry with him. And when you think about that, you know, Andrew's solution is, you know, five biscuits and two sardines. <laughs> and then he realizes it's almost so ridiculous that he even brought it up. What a dumb thing to say. But what are these for so many? But then Jesus did the most amazing thing. He took what that little boy had and he fed the crowd. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now notice it's 5,000 men. We, we always know that whenever Jesus was teaching, there was also this retinue of women. Lots of women came and followed Jesus and were engaged in ministry and uh, were supportive in, in every facet of it. And you see this repeatedly all through the Scripture. And, and not only that, but children. Jesus would often use the children as an object lesson. And so women and children are there. So if we're conservative, let's say another 5,000 women and children, let's say 10,000. Okay? Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, He distributed those to those who were seated. 
Likewise, also the fish, look at this, as much as they wanted. I mean, Jesus had suddenly turned that mountainside into a golden corral. I mean, they weren't dining, they were feeding. That's what you do at Golden Corral. You don't dine, you feed. You know, it's, a, it's not all you can eat, it's more than you should eat, right? And they're eating as much as they want it. So everybody's not only getting satiated, they're getting miserable. Verse 12, and when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Now look at this. And they, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. I mean, the, the interesting part was it was so abundantly supplied that they had way more left over than what they had started with. 12 baskets of the fragments from the five barley loaves, uh, which were left over by those who had eaten. And so the obvious point of this story is it's another sign demonstrating the authority and the power of Jesus, right? And the people got it. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Now, before we move on to application, I, I wanted to show you an interesting insight that got lost in the translation. It's just, it's, it's really not that important, but it's just one of those beautiful artistic touches of the Holy Spirit. You know, you remember, um, I, I quote that Hebrews verse a lot that says, the Old Testament was shadows of things that were to come. And we see in the Old Testament, and this is really validation of the authority of Jesus, it's validation of the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus. Because when you read the Old Testament, you see these portraits of Jesus everywhere. And there's one here, but it gets lost in the way the words are translated. Notice that before he fed them, he said, have them sit on the grass. Do you see that? Well, that word sit is, is really a word, and it's not the normal word that I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit in a chair. It, the word really means to recline or fall backward. Matthew and Mark both tell the same story, and they use another word, not this same word in the Greek, another word that means the same thing, not sit down, but fall back or recline. Both of the, All three of them use that same word. And that word for grass that John used, quote, here's a quote out of a, out of a uh, Kittle theological word study, grassy field where livestock would normally graze, quote, pasture. And so it's a pasture. He made them recline on the pasture. And Mark adds an insight. He uses the word chloros, which is the Greek word for green. It's where we get the word chlorophyll, which means green leaf. He said it was green grass. And so taken together, this literally means Jesus literally told them, lie down on the green pastures. Where have you heard that expression before? How about Psalm 23? What's it say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. And it's interesting to me that at the latter part of John 6, when he gives the sermon on the bread of life, the important principle is, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats me will never hunger or want. But then notice what he says. He makes me what? Lie down on green pastures. That was not accidental. 
that's one of those homages. And you, you add to it the fact that the barley loaf that the little boy had was actually food that was given to livestock. Normal people didn't eat it. And that word that's translated filled, they ate until they were filled. Here's Barclay on that. Originally in classical Greek, it was a word used for feeding animals with fodder. And so the whole point of this little thing is an homage to Psalm 23. Jesus, the good shepherd, is making them lie down in green pastures so that he can feed them so that they will no longer want. Now, that's probably not going to change your life, but it, it just kind of gives you an insight into the beautiful orchestry, orchestration of, of how God put this thing together. Um, and the next day he would equate the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves to what Moses had done in the Old Testament with manna, and then he would give his bread of life sermon. So let's talk about the application, okay? You see, the point was never to see the disciples feed 5,000. The point was for them to see Jesus do it. And in the process, to understand that he could do what they couldn't do. So the ultimate point of all of this was not only to recognize the authority and power of God, but to, in a crisis, trust him, open up, and give what we have to him. And we see this in the three protagonists in the story. And so let's pick those up. Uh, three reactions. And John, Mark, and Matthew, all three are recorded the same way. The first reaction is the pragmatist, okay? You know what a pragmatist is? That's somebody that's overly practical. You know, that's the person that's got to have all the answers before they take the risk, right? And Philip was the pragmatist in this story. I mean, immediately when Jesus said, where are we to find bread? He doesn't talk about where, he talks about how much, because his mind, as a pragmatist, starts to figure it up. And he says, he comes to a quick conclusion, 10,000 people, how much is it per person? 200 denarii, 200 days wages is going to cover this. And I thought, well, let's check his math, okay? A denarius is a day's wage, you got it? They tell me that the average wage of an American job worker today is $50,000 in America, right? So if you take how many days he works and divide that into 50,000, you'll have how much a day's wages. Well, there's 365 days. You got to back out the weekends. Most people don't work, but five days a week, right? And then there's two weeks for vacation. There's two weeks for sick pay. So on average, the average worker works about 233 days a year. So you take 233 and you divide that in to uh, 50,000, which is the average day's wage, and it comes out $214.60 a day. I did the math. You don't have to. So an average American makes $214.60 a day. Now, Philip said it was 200 denarius, 200 denarii. So you got to multiply 200 by 214.6, and that comes out to $42,918.45. Now divide uh, $42,918.45 by 10,000 people, and you come out to $4.29 a person. So I looked it up. A chicken nugget Happy Meal is $4.49. But they've only got $4.29 to cover every person. In other words, we don't have enough money at 200 denarii to buy enough Happy Meals to feed everybody. It's not enough. And anyway, who thinks they're carrying around $49,000, right? And so quickly, notice how quickly the pragmatist turns into a pessimist. Why is that? Well, because this crisis was beyond his ability. 
You see, pragmatists are always limited by what they think they're capable of. This is the problem with pragmatism. If he can't do it, then he thinks it can't be done. And you run into this all the time. I remember one time we were on this building committee and we were looking at the feasibility of building a, is in a different church, the feasibility of building a, a, an adult education building. And we had this guy on the team, and man, he was super smart. He was an engineer, and, uh, and he was constantly running the numbers. He had this little calculator. Man, he could 10-key that calculator. You know, when I'm doing those kind of things in a meeting, I'm, I'm, I'm usually ballparking everything so we can move fast, you know. It's like, well, that would be a million. He's like, no, 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 no. That's 972,255. Okay, well, that's close to a million, right? So can we just, like, move with quick numbers and, you know, well, that's not the real thing, you know? So that's kind of the way he's wired up. And he kept doing that, and he kept going, I don't see how we can do this. I don't think we're going to be able to do it. I don't think we can afford it. And there was another guy on the committee, and we called him Pop, and he was a World War II instructor in the F4U Corsair airplane. And after the war, he became the chief operating guy at Braniff Airlines. So this is a guy who was used to taking big risks and doing big things. And finally, he'd kind of had enough. And he looked over and he said, hey, Bruce, can you spell faith on that calculator? And he made a powerful point in that moment. We can't do it if we're the only ones capable of it. I mean, we need pragmatists. We need people who are going to look at the bottom line, count the cost, do all. We need that. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, you've got to be able to spell faith on your calculator. Or you're going to run into a crisis. And you're going to run into the situation that's bigger than your capability. And then you're going to get worried and stressed out and burned out, and angry, and despairing, which is exactly what our culture is today. And you slide into the despair of the pessimist. Here's what pragmatic Philip forgot to remember. My weakness might limit me, but it doesn't limit God. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The next guy up is the optimist. That's Andrew, the optimist. He's a can-do guy with a don't-quit spirit, right? I love being around optimists. You know why I like optimists? Because they always speak in hyperbole. An optimist always talks about the best, the biggest, the most awesome, the most fantastic. You cook a hamburger for an optimist, you know what he's going to tell you? That's the best hamburger I've ever had in my whole life. I've never had a hamburger that good before. You know, and he really believes it because that's the optimist. The pessimist, who's not much fun to be around, how'd you like your hamburger? Well, I've had better. Yeah. Remind me to cook you another hamburger, right? Everyone loves an optimist. And that's Andrew. I mean, Andrew spent his life that way. So when he hears the assignment, how are you going to feed them? Where are you going to find uh, food to feed them or, or, or what you need to feed them? Andrew starts to immediately do what he does as an optimist. He begins to network. Hey, man, what you got? Hey, what you got? What you got? You got anything? You got some food? We're trying to feed everybody. You got anything? You got more than you need? You know, he's working the crowd. He's, he's at the call center, but everybody's hanging up on him. All he can come up with is one little kid. What you got? Well, I got my, we got my five, my five loaves and my two sardines. Oh, come on. Maybe somebody else has done better than me. And he drags him back up to Jesus. And here's the scene as I see it. Just as he gets to Jesus, it's like, hey, Jesus, I found somebody. He's got five loaves and two fish. And just as he says that, he hears Philip say, 200 denarii are not sufficient for everybody to have a little. And then Andrew, the stark reality, 
crushes down on his optimism, and he says, but what are these for so many? And it's funny how pessimism so quickly infects other people. And that's what happens. You know, optimism is a beautiful thing, but eventually reality is going to crush your optimism because a positive attitude and a can-do spirit and possibility thinking can't overcome a crisis. Why were both of these guys so quick to turn into pessimists? And here's the answer. They were both trying to solve the problem in their own strength. And that's what's going on these days. It's fine to be an optimist, but it's fine to be a pessimist. I mean, a pragmatist. Both of these are great at problem solving, but when you get a crisis, that's a problem you can't solve. You need, a, you need something bigger than you. There's a third option here. It's the child. You've got the pragmatist. You've got the optimist. Let's talk about the child. What did the child do? What did he do? He gave what he had and turned it over to Jesus. Isn't that what he did? He gave what he had and turned it over to Jesus for the result. By the way, God only asks you for what you already have. I think that's important to remember. He's always doing that. When he, when he was talking to Moses and he, he comes to Moses and the assignment for Moses was go back, to Israel, go back to Egypt and deliver the nation of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh. Moses already tried that. He already failed. He spent 40 years sort of ruminating on his failure about how he had, he had blown his whole life and given it all up. Now he's been in the wilderness and, and he, he's, he's accustomed to that. He's learned his limitations. And so the burning bush, God says, I've got an assignment for you that's bigger than you. And all Moses can talk about is what he can't do. I, I can't talk. I can't speak. I can't do this. And God says to him, what's in your hand, Moses? And he looks in his hand. He's got his staff. He's got his rod. He says, throw it down. And he throws it down, and the thing turns into a serpent. Remember the story? And then God says, pick it up. I always thought it would have been easier to throw it down than pick it up. You know, who wants to grab that thing? And he picks it up. And that's what God does. He doesn't ask for what you don't have. He asks for what's already in your hand. David faced a giant. So what you got in your bag, David? Five stones. That's enough. You'll only need one. This little boy said, what's in your lunch? Kid said, five biscuits and two sardines. Jesus said, that's enough. He only asked for what you already had. And listen, God never asked for what you don't have. And that's liberating, man. Because the one thing we always think of when we're in a crisis is what we don't have. I don't have the ability. I don't have the eloquence. I don't have the insight. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the finances. I don't have the power. Man, you're going to deal with a crisis. You know, collegiate crisis. You're going you're to turn up at a test that you don't have the, you don't have the intellect to uh, overcome. You're going you're gonna to run into a teacher that you don't have the people skills to deal with. You're going to have a, a, a date crush your heart. You're going to be disappointed and discouraged. You're going to have health issues that you, you didn't anticipate and you can't overcome. I mean, there's so many different ways these crises can show up. And if you focus on what you don't have, then you're going to always feel worried and demoralized and overly stressed. And God doesn't care about what you don't have. 
He only cares about what He's already put in your hand. Give Him what you got. And Jesus calls us today. He calls us to childlike faith. Just open your hands and give Him what you got. Trust Him for the... Now listen, He doesn't call us to childishness. Childishness and childlikeness are different. Childishness is demanding and critical and complaining. That's, ch- that's childishness. Childlikeness is trusting and obedient. That's childlikeness. And you know what I've realized in church? We have people who've studied every part of the Bible. They got large sections memorized. They got a PhD in Beth Moore. They've got all of this stuff. And, they, and yet they still are very critical and complaining and childish. And yet we measure maturity so often by how well you know the Bible, how, how much of the Bible you have instead of how much of the Bible has you. And really the better measurement is how complaining and critical you are because we're called to childlikeness, not childishness. And so when he called on that little boy, he called on the very thing he had. And you got to realize too, this little guy, his tummy is rumbling just like everybody else's. And that's the only thing he's got. He's already poor. And he's going to give up the very thing that he needs the most in that moment, which is his five biscuits and two fish. And he doesn't know if Jesus isn't going to do to him what every other adult had done in that world, and that is take what he already had. And yet he gave it up anyway. And look, when you put it in God's hands, he does more with it than you could ever imagine. You know, you put five biscuits and two sardines in my hands, and I can feed one person. You put five biscuits and two sardines in Jesus' hands, He can feed 10,000. And so it comes back to this. Look, it's okay to be a pragmatist. You guys are pragmatists. That's cool. We need you. We need you to count the cost. We need you to think it through. It's okay to be an optimist. We need you. Man, do we ever need optimists? You can see the best and look for the good. You're always bringing people with you to Jesus. We need you. We don't need any pessimists. The easiest thing in the world is to be a pessimist. We don't need that. God doesn't call you to that. But when you run into a crisis and you're facing a 500-pound gorilla, what we need most is for you to be a child. And you just say, God, whatever I got, whatever you put in my hands, he put it in your hands for this very moment. Here it is, God, it's yours. And in that moment, you not only release what you had, but you release everything else that goes with it. And you say, I'm going to trust you for what I can't do. Right? And in that moment, you're free. The crises are coming. Trust me. The problems are here every day. The crises are coming. And when you come into that crisis, just remember what we said today. Be a child. Would you pray with me right now? Father, I pray for those that are in crisis today. Man, we live as pastors. We live in the world of crisis. That's when we get called. And so, God, we know so many crises in marriages, crisis with children, crisis with addiction, crisis of loneliness and despair, crisis of health, crisis of aging. Father, I 
I thank you that you don't always keep us from the crisis, but you carry us through them. And so, Father, help us to be childlike. Take what we have, open our hands, give it to you. Father, I pray for those that are in crisis right now. They'd be able to do that. And I thank you that as our loving Father, nothing's going to touch us that you're not in control of. Even if we die knowing Jesus, we have eternity and we have heaven in front of us. And so we don't have to worry. We don't have to feel anxious and we don't have to despair. And I pray we'd walk in that as a child would. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.